0: line.
1: Hello, this is PJ Ewing I am host of Lester the Nightfly thanks for joining me on another adventure every week it's something different as you well know you never know what you're gonna get I'm gonna throw you a really big curveball tonight because we're going somewhere that I have never been and I'll bet you lots of money that you've never been either and that is the world of Indian classical music think about that for a second indian classical music from the east from another culture from another world yet we call it classical music and we're going to define our terms as we go and it's not just me trying to muddle through we have a special guest on this show it's a doctor his name is dr nitin ron dr ron welcome to lester the nightfly thank
2: you so much pj
1: I'm so glad you're here. You 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 we are wingmen. You're going to help me and I'm going to help you and we're going to get through this. And I'm hoping that we explain some things to people from your background and uh and my homework and we're gonna learn together and and explain together uh, what this Indian classical music world is all about. You know before we do any of that let's talk about you a little bit and your work in the neonatal units here in New York working with babies. You're an adventurer, you are a scientist, you are a hiker You have this ridiculously interesting background, and I'm wondering if maybe you wanna take us through a little bit of that.
2: Oh, absolutely. And first and foremost, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me on here. I am a neonatologist. Many people might not exactly know what it means, and they confuse it with a neurologist. So a neonate is a newborn baby, and uh, essentially I graduated in pediatrics and did my fellowship in newborn medicine from Brown University, Rhode Island, And now I am at Brooklyn Methodist Hospital. It's a part of the New York Presbyterian Hospital group. And we take care of tiny babies. We have a 28-bed intensive care unit with tiny, tiny little babies. Some of them are born very early and they might not even be bigger than the size of your iPhone uh, Plus model. They are so, so tiny. So everything is microscopic in these little babies, their whole world is microscopic in a way but if you think that these little babies are tiny and delicate you got another thing coming oh my god these are the strongest little critters on earth if i ever think that i'm having a bad day i just walk to the incubator raise up the curtain look at this tiny baby and many of them even if they have a breathing tube even if they have an iv line running through them they will look at you If they are about five or six weeks old and they will smile I am looking at them and thinking wow if this little baby can smile through all that he or she is going through why do I think I have problems so I have always loved newborn medicine, neonatology, and that's something I'm very passionate
1: about. You've done a number of talks on the topic. I've seen a few of them uh, more recently and, and over the last number of years for TED and other organizations. You're really out there educating us all on what's happening in these units with these challenged situations, with these babies at risk. It's, you're, you're really out there um, spreading the word, aren't you?
2: Oh, I love it, because as you rightly said, PJ, you know, love and compassion, I feel, are the strongest energies that make the world go round. We have a program at our hospital, currently on hold due to the pandemic, called the Baby Cuddler Program. We have these volunteer cuddlers come in, just cuddle and love these tiny premature babies. And there is a lot of strong evidence from my alma mater at Brown, as well as many large neonatal units, which shows that the cuddled babies go home much quicker, have far lesser complications. They are far better developed even as teenagers than the non-cuddled ones. So cuddling is great. And this led me to research the neuroscience behind love, compassion, and therefore look at the neuroscience behind music, which I love playing.
1: Right. Now now you you play the flute, right? Indian flute? Yes, absolutely. Tell me this. Uh, Boy, I'm going to show my ignorance right now. What does that look like? That looks nothing like a traditional Western flute, does it?
2: It is a little bit different. It's closer to, I guess, a recorder, if you will. And it's fun because they are usually the classical ones are made of bamboo reed. And uh, they might be a side flute where you hold it on the side and you can blow air from the top or the direct one where you blow right into it.
1: I do want to talk a little bit more or hear a little bit more about your hiking and mountaineering because I, I you know, we met all oh, five months ago at an event in the, in the city and we struck up a conversation and you mentioned Mount Everest and your adventures there. And I, we, we would do a disservice to everyone if they didn't hear a little bit about what you've done on that giant space, that giant mountain.
2: Oh, yes. I love the mountains. And, you know, it's as Edmund Hillary, the first person to summit Mount Everest. If you discount George Mallory, who probably is the one who climbed it first in the 1920s, but there is no actual documentation that he came back down alive. So technically, Edmund Hillary is the one who went up first and came back down. But as he famously said, it's not the mountain we conquer but ourselves when we climb. And that really is true. It's a great challenge for me to be in the mountains. Everest actually was among the first, was the first mountain that I ever climbed in my life. I did a hike to Mount Everest base camp. And then I looked at Everest and she is called Chomolungma. The energy is always feminine when it is powerful in the East. And so out of the 14 highest mountains, all in the Himalayas, 10 are named after powerful goddesses. So Mount Everest is called Chomolungma and she is called the mother goddess of the earth. So this is the Tibetan translation. So I looked at her and I said, oh my God, if she allows me, I would love to climb up on Mount Everest. So I did a crash course in mountaineering for two weeks and the next year I was up climbing Everest. And... uh, so she was the first mountain I ever climbed in my life and I am afraid of heights so Edmund Hillary's quote was really very powerful there but you know PJ what was exciting for me was not just the destination but the actual journey this is where looping in music comes in as well as a little bit of the neuroscience research that I'm doing because as I was climbing the mountain I have now done 19 visits into the Himalayas different areas different regions and this stimulated me to start a research project looking at mountain sickness, which is the greatest killer on the mountain, and how we can predict it. And one of the things we looked at was meditation and to see if it attenuates mountain sickness. I actually have a research paper that I presented at the Emergency Medicine National Conference a few years ago on that topic. But you know, this made it even cooler. This incident where I was hiking in sub-zero temperatures and I see this group of monks with just this basic musical instrument called Iktara, which basically has just one string and it makes this lovely resonating sound. These monks were chanting, dancing, playing this music and walking on the mountain barefoot. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, okay, this is not making sense to me. I am a doctor. And these people are walking barefoot for six weeks on this glacier up in the high Himalayas. I even examined them and they were normal. And this is the first time that to my mind came the power of meditation, the power of music. And my most recent trip to the Himalayas, among my more recent, about four years ago, I was in Tibet going to Mount Kailash, which is one of the most sacred mountains in the world and again I'm doing this huge very tall pass called the Dolmala Pass and I see these Tibetan ladies right they are not even monks these ladies are singing they are chanting and they have no sense of pain no expression of any difficulty they were smiling as opposed to my agonized face I was up on this mountain pass up in Tibet and just singing these ladies are going up and circumambulating these mountains and there was a monk who was again singing and prostrating and doing this whole journey just by prostrating himself repeatedly as opposed to walking and again chanting and singing to himself this made my interest really peaked in looking at the science behind meditation and the science behind music and trying to correlate it to neuroscience. My main focus was neonatal neuroscience at Brown University. And so this was a scientist in me trying to find answers. So this is how I was able to combine mountains with meditation, with little babies and music and try to combine all my loves into one universal umbrella.
1: So interesting. You're doing such a good job of bringing us back to music. I keep sending us off in directions and you're bringing us back, bringing us back. It's great, thank you. It is a show about music after all and that's what we're gonna do now. (laughs) We're gonna talk about Indian classical music and in fact, we're gonna listen to some right now. Let's jump into a song so you can get get the mood, start to feel this a little bit. We're gonna define our terms later. Let's start with some Indian flute music in honor of you, Dr. Ron, who play the flute. This is um, uh, an artist named Hari Prasad Chaurasia and the song is called Bhupali. It's from the Raga Guide from 1999. Let's listen to it and then we'll get our show started with uh, a world of Indian classical music here on Lester the Nightfly. some beautiful flute music in the background. Let's define our terms a little bit and we'll, we'll, we'll start our journey. The first thing I want to do is just we're calling this Indian classical music. I just want to read something so we're all on the same page. What does it mean when you say classical music? And so here's a little phrase that I found in my research. Classical music and art music are terms that have been used to refer to music of different cultural origins and traditions such traditions often date to a period regarded as the golden age of music for a particular culture so we're calling our classical music the golden age and we think of western music in this case we're going to think of eastern music eastern classical music and then when we talk about indian classical music there are two forms. It's really north and south, right, Dr. Ron? Hindustani and Carnatic, is that right?
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Okay. And so we have two different traditions, but these date way back. Uh, I've seen uh, 15th century, I've seen references to the 13th century. This is a really ancient form of, of music, whether it's Hindustani or Carnatic, right? Yes. Fascinating. Um, okay, and, and so we, we have this ancient tradition. It's in India. It goes back many, many hundreds of years. Then there's one quote that I really wanted to share with everyone, and that is uh, the 13th century Sanskrit text Sangita Retnakara of Saragadevi is regarded as the definitive text by both Hindustani and Carnatic music tradition so we can go back that far to this sort of the the place where both traditions actually begin how am i doing so far
2: incredible i actually am learning a lot
1: this is a really wonderful exploration so i'm almost done with the definitions and we're going to get into some music on um, some more music there are two foundational elements so this is important everyone to listen to and we're going to have more explanations by real professionals in a second and that is indian classical music has two foundational elements the raga and the tala right okay everybody raga tala two key things this is not hard to figure out once you hear what i say the raga is based on a varied repertoire of swara these are just notes including little shifts, little English, little microtones, they call them. And they form a fabric of deeply intricate melodic structure. Okay. So the Raga is really the music and it's broken up into little pieces, little microtones while the Tala Raga and Tala that measures the time cycle, the meter, the speed, the rhythm. We've got music, and rhythm to really simplify this. We're gonna have more explanations and if you visit lesterthenightfly.com and look up the show, I've got some unbelievable videos that will take you through real explanations in some detail about the raga and the tala, the two core pieces of Indian classical music. It is music that is very complicated. You could spend a lifetime, and many do, trying to understand what is going on with these different patterns of sound there's a scale that can vary in many, many ways. And there are many, many very complicated rhythms that are going on. And these things work together with the, the instruments that are used to play the music. It's really interesting stuff. Okay, let me pause for a second. Do you have anything to say about these concepts, Raga, tala, right now?
2: Yes, I was actually very lucky to learn playing the flute since I was a kid. And it's probably because I was very ADHD and my parents thought it wise to channel my restlessness. And apart from studies and other stuff that I did daily, it was important for them to see if they could calm me down and quieten me. And so they started sending me to flute class. And that's where I learned all exactly the same basics that you had mentioned. And that made me starting to fall in love with music Initially I did it because I was forced to, because my parents sent me to this flute class to learn this classical music, but then I started falling in love with it. But you have explained it very nicely, so I have nothing to add to the technical
1: part. Okay, I think I got, I got some basics. I mean, I'm looking through my notes and it's, it's thick. We're not going to do that, everyone. I do, well, I will just say, I do think we should do more in this area and get a little deeper and focus um, even more specifically. So we've been listening to some Indian flute music. Uh, really, the artist that I mentioned earlier, Hari Prasad Chaurasia, is the, uh, the artist. Let's listen to some more. The next track is called Abhogi. And then right after that we're going to move right into a tune called Bageshri. This is again from the Raga Guide from 1999. (laughs) I'm <laughs> Dr. Ron, tell us why you chose this particular artist or these particular tracks, these tunes? What what inspires you about Indian flute music and and, and what we've been listening to?
2: Yes, the beauty of the flute is that it is eminently portable, I can carry it with me anywhere. And that's why I love it, because you can produce beautiful music. A few years ago, when I used to do rounds in the neonatal unit, both in England, as well as here in New York, whenever I used to feel the tension rise among the people taking care of the babies, you know, there are, it's a a large crew taking care of a tiny premature baby. There are nurses, there are residents, nurse practitioners, us as the attending physicians, like the whole team, the occupational therapists, sometimes the ego starts to rise and sometimes there is debate and discussion on who is right and who is wrong. In those moments, it's just very nice to step aside, whip out the flute for me, play a little tune, center everybody and then everybody comes back down to earth and starts laughing, realizing that what we are arguing about is just possibly a matter of ego more than anything else. And ultimately what matters is the little baby at, the end of the line in this little incubator. So it's fun to have the portability of the flute. So that has influenced me a lot. And Chaurasia Hari Prasad Chaurasia has been one of my role models in just listening to this beautiful, beautiful music. Flute is among the two instruments that I have fallen in love with. The second one is called the Veena and which is a beautiful, large stringed instrument. And I am very lucky PJ because my uncle, when I was a kid. His name is Swami Datta Parvatikar. Uh, he renounced worldly life when he was a child and went into the Himalayas. And he plays, he passed away in the 90s, uh, 1990 to be exact. And he actually played this beautiful veena called the Rudra veena. And he actually invented a variation in this veena, this musical instrument. And he is a part of Nada Yoga which means bringing in spirituality through music and uh, he is called reverentially Swami Parvatikar and he spent most of his time in the Himalayas. So he was my role model in just how one can use music to go into yourself and to foster enlightenment. because. Hopefully the event will arise that during this uh, session, I'll be able to talk on music and meditation and how it affects the human mind. But that's what has been utterly fascinating to me about classical music to such an extent that my father and I, we wrote a book last year and uh, this is actually on pranayama, breathing techniques, exploring the science behind breathing. But again, music affects breathing. So my dad has been a practitioner of meditation and uh, Pranayam which is the the yoga breathing for over five decades. He's an atomic scientist and I in this book provide the medical aspect of it. So it's so exciting PJ to explore the musical instruments available for Indian classical music. And again, as I mentioned, my favorites are the flute and the veena uh, in this case.
1: Tell me this, I've got so many questions. Um, Firstly, do you, is it a regular thing, an occasional thing for you to bring your flute with you when you're doing rounds and working?
2: The flute is actually in my office next door, which is like about 15 to 20 steps away. And uh, it is not regular. It is the exception rather than the rule. And it's a few years since I have actually done that. But there are many times, PJ, when we go away from being centered and then go out and the ego takes over and the ego starts taking us on a ride and this is where the music comes in to just center yourself music plays a very big role in combating stress especially in this hospital scenario I go to the mountains very often in India and uh, the cities I visit less often but uh, there's always music in the mountains and the flutes are always there. Almost in every part of India, Nepal, Bhutan, you have it available. And these are made by the villagers. These are all like made very expertly by incredible people who know what they're doing.
1: Does it have a limited scale or can you really run a number of octaves up and down with one of those flutes?
2: It depends on the grade of the flute. For example, a C grade would be a higher pitch and an A grade would be a lower pitch. But you can play about with it to many, many levels, even with a regular flute.
1: Wow. Wow. Really, I love I love you fluting your way through your practice. I, I, I love that idea.
2: It is so interesting that one of the ragas that you mentioned earlier was rag Bhupali that you spoke about. This is my favorite one. It's a very basic one because it's pentatonic. It just has five notes and the nice thing, I call it the enlightenment Raga in this case. And the reason is that because there are five notes, there are two swaras which are missing and they are Ni and Ma in the flute. Okay, And now the interesting thing is the equivalent of me is worldly pleasure and Ma, the other note which is missing in this Raga, refers to love, but the possessive material kind of love. So I love it because rag Bhupali doesn't have these two notes. So it engenders us to release material pleasures and release the possessive kind of love and to make love more unconditional. So I love to call it the enlightenment raga. So I love to play this raga which is my favorite on the flute and also play the Tibetan singing bowls and it's exciting for me to combine this in my daily meditation. So if not every day several times a week depending on my mood and my my requirement of you know what I need to center myself, I would be playing it to myself several times a day. Yes.
1: You're listening to Lester the Nightfly. This is PJ Ewing. I'm here with Dr. Nitin Ran. I told you it's really deep uh, and it is very complicated. Those uh, swaras, there is a series of notes and they have names like do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. It's, there's there's a parallel universe. (laughs) It really is like the metaverse. It's like uh, the Western world turns on its angle and its approach is very different with the ragas and the suaras and the scale and the, and, the, and the tala. But yet the it's still music, obviously, and it still has concepts that are very rigid, yet uh, offer all kinds of improvisational opportunities. When, when people describe the music, they may say words that say, oh, I know what that is, but we don't. You, you, you think you understand when someone says, oh, it, there's a lot of improvisation in Indian classical music. Oh, well, that, that, it must be jazz then. And yet you'll hear that, that it isn't jazz. And then you see the scale and, oh, it must be a scale. Well, the scale may go up one way and come down a different way. And there's all kinds of subtlety in, in, in the middle. Or you look at the rhythm. The rhythm is incredibly complicated and it evolves oftentimes as the song goes along so so yes there are concepts from our western canon that's not quite right our western style our western approach yet it it really it's almost like it's all sideways when i try to apply what i know about music to indian classical music it's it's really complicated but really compelling for me i have to say
2: I absolutely love that. And uh, you are absolutely, absolutely right. And this is so interesting because uh, I actually lead workshops. I've been very lucky to do a bunch of them where uh, uh, many of them for doctors and the latest one is going to be in San Diego at the Pediatric Program Director's Conference where I inculcate music you know, into meditation as a part of de-stressing ourselves and to reduce burnout. So you're absolutely right. You know, this music has a lot to do with the neuroscience going on inside our body. And uh, it helps a lot to ground us, center us, reduce anxiety,
1: as well as make us happier. I think there's an opportunity for us to borrow some of this incredible thinking and work that's been done for, you know, centuries uh, in India and in your world, Doctor Ron, and simply put on the record and close your eyes and p- put yourself into a comfortable position and absorb without all the the logic of the scale and the rhythms, not without all the understanding. There's value in just trying to absorb uh, what, what's foreign to our ears, of course. Yet it, it there's. Uh, I think there's a, in in today's world where we're all trying to find little corners of peace, you know, calm, I think that there's a channel here to achieve that uh, through this music.
2: I absolutely agree with you, and I love the way you put it just now, you're so correct about it. I am on the point of starting a YouTube channel next month, will probably be the first episode, It's called Mindful Moments with Dr. Ron, where I use music, meditation, and little episodes from my life taking care of little babies, as well as from my mountaineering life, and try to see how music and meditation can actually play a role in our everyday life to center us.
1: This is a a lifelong journey for me, I can tell. These are my first steps into it. We're gonna move on. We've been listening to some Indian flute music, and that has been joyful and calming. The artist, as you've heard a few times, Hari Prasad Chaurasia, is the the focal point. But we're moving on now to a name that you may very well know, and that is Ravi Shankar. And we're gonna talk a little bit about him, but what I'd like to do is actually play perfectly timed for our conversation, uh, a, a short piece that explains Indian Music. This is called An Introduction to Indian Music. It's from a record called The Best of Sitar, again 2017. This is a, a reissue. But this is Ravi Shankar explaining some of the things that we've been talking about. Let's take a listen and then we'll talk about it.
3: Ragas are precise melody forms. A raga is not a mere scale. Nor is it a mode. Each raga has its own ascending and descending movement. and those subtle touches and usage of microtones and stresses on particular notes like this. with the tambura, the drone instrument in the background. The soloist does a free improvisation known as alap, after which he starts the theme based on a rhythmic framework known as tala. He can choose from many talas such as teen tal a rhythmic cycle of 16 beats. one, two, three,
0: four,
3: five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, one. 1. Or Japtal having 10 beats. two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, one. 1, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 1. The tabla, or the drums, which keeps this framework, just plays the dhekas, or beats, in the beginning, as you heard just now. Then starts the gradual progression of playing first smaller patterns, then longer ones. In the beginning, the accompanying tabla gives, if I may say so, a reply to the lead instrument such as the sitar. At times, they may play together a long rhythmic pattern and return with a climax to sum or the one, which is the most important thing. Like this. bırak one one Although the role of the tabla is relatively free, it is the lead instrument which directs the whole progress of the improvisation. The Western listener will appreciate and enjoy our music more if he listens with an open and relaxed mind, without expecting to hear harmony, contour point, or other elements prominent in Western music. Neither should our music be thought of as akin to jazz, despite the improvisation and exciting rhythms present in both kinds
1: of music. Okay, that was Ravi Shankar. We listened to the uh, an introduction to Indian music. I think that, I, I just, cards on the table, Dr. Ron and everyone, I've listened to that probably six times and I've taken extensive notes to try to absorb this stuff. And I would suggest that you can go to Lester the Nightfly and listen to this show again or just look up on Spotify or wherever, An Introduction to Indian Music. Um, That is a really great brief explanation of the raga and the tambura and the tala and the drums, the tabla, the chekas and then the climax, the sum or the one that he explains toward the end of that piece. And then this is where I got mad at the world because just as I was going to say, oh, this is just jazz, he says specifically, it's not jazz. (laughs) It was like he was talking, Dr. Ron, it's like he was talking to PJ, PJ, I know what you want to say, this isn't jazz. And uh, so he threw my theories right out the window. He also says in this little piece, don't look for harmony. And don't look for counterpoint. Don't look for the things that you're used to finding, they're not there in this form of music. And so again, that's why I keep tilting my head as I say these words like, it's not square, it's on an angle, at least to our ears. Um, I don't know if you have any more thoughts on, on the, the, the comparison between the West and the East in this case.
2: Oh absolutely and I so love it that you brought out this point because for me all music can be meditative but much more so the Indian classical music as well as the Tibetan singing bowl music. I love to think of them as a part of the same continuum because there is that part of it that is heard it's called the ahat. The ahat means you know the actual notes that you intentionally play However, there is another note which is called the anahat, an as in of course not ahat, and which is the subtle part of the music, the resonance, the pakasim note, which you actually hear in between the other notes. This is even more poignant when you play the Tibetan singing bowls. When you actually play the bowl and when you rotate the uh the instrument which i cannot remember its name because it's uh it's like a spatula but it goes around the bowl that's the intentional part but the moment you leave the rubbing and the friction and just let go pj this incredible intonation and resonance starts coming through which just fills up the whole room and this is the subtle part of it so i love it because like you again very nicely put it earlier it looks very obvious it looks very visible but there is a beautiful subliminal invisible part of the music which goes right into us And that I feel is the beauty of this kind of music.
1: I'll just say it's just struck me that uh, it was a month ago. I did an interview with a woman from Tel Aviv. Her name is Malka Russell. We shared one of her tunes, but she does what she calls sound healing and she uses crystal bowls and she uses the Tibetan bowls to do the sound healing. And she does music, sound, meditation uh, as a treatment if you will, and these aren't conditions like the babies. It's not, not as severe. These are r- adults who are looking for calm and peace and and centering and mindfulness. Uh, but she does this in Israel, and she uh, in, in fact explained a little bit about that. And I'm just connecting right now the two that um, you're really saying a lot of the same things, even though she's coming from Israel and you're coming from the Indian culture. This is a tune by Ravi Shankar called Kafi Holi, the Spring Festival of Colors. Let's learn a little bit more about Ravi Shankar. He's the big dog. The most important figure really in this world of the sitar and Indian music. He opened it to the West, he opened it to the Beatles, he's a big deal. We'll talk a lot more about Ravi Shankar in the next episode with Dr. Nitin Ran. Ravi Shankar sometimes spelled Rabindra Shankar Chaudhuri from April 7th 1920 to 11 December 2012 was an Indian sitarist and composer. A sitar virtuoso He became the world's best known exponent of North Indian classical music in the second half of the 20th century and influenced many musicians in India and throughout the world. Shankar was awarded India's highest civilian honor, the Bharat Ratna in 1999. So that's the end of this show on Indian classical music. Of course, there is a part two. We will dive into the rest of the playlist that Dr. Ron has given us. We have a lot more to say about the topic, and we'll learn even more about Ravi Shankar as we go. It's going to be a lot of fun. I know this is a deep dive. I know this is off the beaten path, but that's why you're here, right? Here on Lester the Nightfly, when you never know what you're going to get. Don't you love that? Let's get together again next week, right here on this great radio station. This has been a PJ DJ production.